Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I had felt hurt again, that I just wanted the pain to end. And it was in one of these moments where I talk about the sound of silence sometimes, where if you've ever heard that, where the silence actually has kind of like a noise, there was like a ringing and I mm. felt so alone. And I had planned that in the days to come, like it would be the end. Somebody called my phone who had not heard from me for a while, who I love, who I care for. But we'd not spoken for some time. It's not something that I speak to all the time. And she rang and she rang again. And something just made me pick the phone up. A time when I wasn't really talking to anybody. And we had a conversation and I told her how low I was feeling. And she said, just give me a, give me a day. I just, there's somebody you need to talk to that I know, trust me. Hello, friends, and welcome to the At the End of the Tunnel podcast with yours truly, Light Watkins. This is the podcast where I really try to bring to life one of my favorite Emerson quotes. Our chief want is someone who will inspire us to be what we know we could be. So in this episode of At the End of the Tunnel, we're going to hear about the story behind an online platform called Surviving Sundays which was started by brand consultant and mental health first aid instructor, Emma Maynou. SurvivingSundays.com is a storytelling platform where stories of self-love, hope, and survival are shared so that conversations around mental health may be normalized and so that people living with or affected by mental health may know that they are not alone and that healing is indeed possible. So I discovered Emma's platform in 2019 in one of the Soho House magazines, and she does a lot of work with Soho House, and I started following it on Instagram, and I even featured it in my monthly online magazine called The Daily Meditator, which you should be subscribed to. And I think that what Emma is doing is so important, so relevant now more than ever, because the conversations around mental health are becoming more and more prevalent, and loneliness in adults is on the rise. Her movement has been quickly gaining traction and her work has become a lifeline for so many people on the surface who may appear to have it all figured out. Maybe they have a great job or lots of resources or lots of money, but behind the scenes, they're struggling. And maybe that's you or someone that you know. As a professional, Emma identified Sundays as being a day of the greatest loneliness because it means having to spend the next five days pretending to be okay. And she thought, I can't be the only one struggling like this before the work week starts. So that debilitating feeling, coupled with a devastating breakup that she experienced, helped to catapult Emma into action and to realize that the way out of the pain was to help others navigate those dreaded Sundays. But I want her to be the one to tell you more about that. So without further ado, I'm pleased to welcome Miss Emma Maynou to the podcast. 
I always like to start these interviews talking about childhood.、Mm-hmm. So, what was your favorite toy as a child, and why? My favorite toy was ET the extraterrestrial, <laughs> who's still in a cupboard at my mum's house. Actually, really, who, yeah,、wow. he has traveled the world with me. Even when I first moved to London twelve years ago, he came with me. I loved him. I was really attached to that toy, and I think it was at a time. I mean, I can't remember what year that movie came out, but I was young, and I think my parents had got divorced around that time, and it wasn't a particularly happy time. And there was just something about that toy and the movie, and just seeing this alien that kind of felt quite lost. But he'd made his friend Elliot, and they had this really special bond. And I think when I look back now and think about, it, obviously, I didn't think about that then, but like, I probably needed a friend. I was having a lot of kind of like emotions going through me that I couldn't. I obviously wouldn't have had the emotional language for at,、mm-hmm. at a young age. But yeah, he was my best friend.、Mm. I used to tell him secrets. Okay, what's an example of a secret you would tell、um, ET the ET doll? I think it was a doll. It was a teddy. I just think things like you know where I might have like hidden something in the garden, or like perhaps things I was thinking, or you know. Just feelings I had, right? Really, I guess around like my dad not being around and stuff that was happening at home. Like、mm. he was my best friend.、Mm. So if you really wanted to upset me, you would take E.T. away from me. That Did would be that hysteria. To you? Yeah. Really? That was your、yeah. punishment? Would, no, 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 no. My, my, my mom. Give me that E.T. doll. <laughs> no, I had some. I had some. Like, let's not call them friends, but there were little kids around that time who knew how much I loved E.T.、Uh-huh. Who used to like to pick on me and like when. Their mum would come and see my mum, and like we'd go off to play in my bedroom. They'd like start throwing ET around the room, or like trying to take、oh、him away from、God. me, and I'd be like hysterical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Interesting. Okay, so let's fast forward. Yeah. To now, you're living in London. You yeah. You grew up in Manchester, right? Yeah. Now you're living in London. Yeah. You're working in. Marketing and design and、mm. branding, and、mm. you're very successful in your work. All right, take us a little bit up until the point where you started the platform, Surviving Sundays. What were you experiencing? What were you feeling? What was happening behind the scenes? So I've worked in brand communications for about twenty years, in in one way or another. So whether that's been PR or marketing or media, and I managed to get myself to quite a good level in in the media world. And in 2012, I experienced a breakdown. So for a lot of my life, I've been living with depression and anxiety. But I don't think I would have labelled them as such at those times. I think I just always felt a little bit other, or when I wasn't at work or out with my friends, I would feel a little bit dark and a little bit heavy. But I, I don't know. I just guess I thought that was life, and I would often have. This stomach churning feeling or overthinking, but I just thought that that was just me, or that's what everybody did. For someone who's never had a breakdown, what does that feel like? What's happening? So you cannot underestimate the impact of a breakdown. Is exactly what it says. So for me, when that moment happened in 2012, right leading up to that time, nobody, I guess, would have would have known what was going on because I was leading teams, you know, winning pitches. I had clients with big budget, and you know I was doing some really great work. I was partying; it looked like everything was great. And then, were you in a relationship? I was in a relationship. So the relationship was actually the trigger. the The end of the relationship was unforeseen, and the consequences of it were quite huge for me in terms of the way that my life was going to look 
in the never, very near future and the way that then it, it kind of ended in that moment. So there was a lot of hope riding on the future imminently. Because in 2012, you were in your early 30s, yeah. which is usually the stage where, you know, people want to start to get serious and yeah. have, maybe have a family yeah. and, and yeah. start nesting. Yeah. So I was 34. I was in love. I was in a relationship with somebody and we were moving to America. So it wasn't just like being in a relationship. We were planning a life in another place. Mm-hmm. We'd spent the best part of a year planning that life together. I was so excited about this new future. Who wouldn't be going to live in LA with somebody that they loved? It was like, you couldn't write it, you know? And as far as I were, was aware, we were a really good couple. We got on, he was happy, I was happy. And so what went on, what transpired was that there was a conversation in which he told me that, you know, his feelings weren't there and he thought the wrong thing would be for me to come to America with him, with the way that he had been feeling. So his LA dream continued. You never saw that coming. Never saw it coming. And I think for me, that was the the thing that took some time to get over was that I remember the day that the conversation happened, the ball of stress I felt in my stomach. And he was doing a big, big deal at the time. It was one of the reasons we were going to America. And I'd said to him in the weeks before, you seem a bit stressed. Are you okay? And he was like, no, we're just moving our whole lives. There'd been some family illness. So he was concerned about that. But there were all these reassurances that mm-hmm. you are the most important person in my life. You know, everything's going to be great. I can't wait till we get away. And I remember that day that the conversation happened saying, you told me only last week that you love me. You know, and the response was, you know, have you never told somebody that you, you, you love them and not meant it? You know, not really any apology, just an explanation that he felt it would be disingenuous to mm-hmm. continue and that he wasn't feeling it, whatever it was, um, the way he had. And mm-hmm. so it was over in that conversation. Did it come out later how much earlier he initially started thinking about... I've never seen him or spoken to him since that day. Is that right? Yeah. Huh. Okay. So, so then what, where were you when this breakdown occurred and what, what, what was happening? So physically we had, it was Christmas time. So we had, we were leaving probably like six weeks later, or I, I can't exactly remember, but it, it was not a long time between Christmas and when we were due to leave. You know, our visas were going through, like arrangements were being made. I'd sold so many things to be able to have some financial independence there. And we'd gone back to our parents' houses to spend Christmas with them as the, like the last Christmas for a while. And we'd come back to London. He'd met me at the station and we got in the, the apartment. I remember we'd left all of our Christmas presents there to have like our Christmas moment together. And I turned the Christmas tree lights on and said, should we open our presents? And he said, yeah, I just need to say something first. And then that, that was the conversation. Mm-hmm. So it was all a bit of a a surprise in that moment, you know? And I think when somebody says to you, I don't love you, there isn't really a way of arguing your way around that as shocking as it was to me. And I, I spent a long time replaying that conversation and the conversations before that. And there were moments when quite honestly, he was unkind and he was cruel. And I think that that was distancing behavior, but mm-hmm. there was always this explanation that it was about work. So I could kind of, kind of write it off against, against that, I guess. Had you been experiencing any mental health stuff before that moment? 
I look back at that time now, and although it's one of the most defining moments of my life, it has worked out to be because of what followed, I see that in that relationship, and in, I know that in the relationships that were previous to that, I wasn't authentic. I was so, this was a dream to me to find somebody, my, I'd had some terrible relationships. You know, and this guy was kind, he was pretty normal. It wasn't abusive. We had this big dream. And I think internally, there were so many moments when I could have taken up more space and been more of myself. And I was afraid to do that because a fear of, I guess, of revealing who I might really be or losing him or disappointing him. And there'd been many times through previous years where, as I say, I, I was either high or low in mood. But at that time, I was actually in a really nice space. That relationship made me happy. I felt, you know, very comfortable, very loved, very supported. Mm -hmm. So it was even more surprising when what happened happened. Mm -hmm. mm. And that was the breakdown night. So it didn't happen like that. In the lead up, when you decide to obviously move, there are a lot of factors to con consider. So I'd been in a job that I had left because he had said to me, like, this is a really big move. Like, why don't you just put your efforts into like thinking about that? We're going to be leaving soon. So I'd left a job. I'd given up an apartment. So I was moving in with him before we went away. I'd had a birthday dinner a month before where we'd said, good, you know, effectively goodbye to some of my friends. And I kind of told a lot of people I was going to LA. So when I walked out of the apartment that night and kind of didn't look back, it was between Christmas and New Year. So there were no hotels. A lot of friends were away. Immediately, I was faced with this challenge of who could I go to in London? I couldn't even get back home to my parents on this particular day. Um, having just arrived a few hours earlier as well. So there was like this fight or flight response that that moment was just all about survival and just getting to a place of safety. And my uncle and the family kind of put me up for a little bit. What then happened was, as I kind of came through that immediate moment, just trying to find a place to be within a day or so, there was a breakdown. I mean, I be it was completely debilitating. It's also vague. It's, it's funny how your mind kind of protects you from this stuff. But I left my auntie and my uncle. I went back to Manchester. And I just remember being in bed. Showering was off the cards. Hmm. Feeding myself. Getting from my bed to, you know, just go to the toilet was really like just, you're just lying there for like so long, just thinking, I need the bathroom, I need the bathroom, I need the bathroom. Like just willing yourself to just get up and do that. Like meeting you. That's how I describe a breakdown. It's the inability to meet even your most basic mm. needs. Mm. And I was experiencing that in a home where my, my mom and my stepfather were there. And there was a time in which I would come back to London and be on my own, which is when it got really quite dark really even darker. But, you know, in those initial times, I couldn't speak to anybody. The phone was ringing. Some people had started to find out what had happened. I couldn't speak to anybody. It was just the darkest thing when you look at a wall where you can see the light come up and down in the day and you know that that's happened and a day has gone by. But you just, you're just looking at a ceiling. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. 
That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. And prior to that, mm. did you have any sort of philanthropic endeavors that you had been doing in your life, in your professional world or outside of that? I mean, I'd worked as an event producer for years and often had produced charity events, either on behalf of clients or I'd wanted to do something. And, and I was like, right, okay, I would think about the charities that I thought were important. But it was by no means any more than anybody did where I, where I come from. Had no. you been the beneficiary of any sort of philanthropic no. organizations? No. Okay. Mm. So, okay, so then what happens next? I want you to talk about surviving Sundays, but yeah. how long from that moment that you had the breakdown until you have this idea to launch this platform and what happened just before you took the action? Yeah, well, between the breakdown and surviving Sundays being launched, there's a period of six years mm -hmm. of which all of it wasn't about recovery. The initial recovery period, I would say, was a year of just getting back on my feet, getting a job, facing the challenges that came with that. The most significant thing that happened within that early, early phase was that there was a time when I knew I had to get a job because I didn't have any money. And a friend of mine who lived in America had a house in London. What do you mean you didn't have any money? I was running out of money because I'd given up my job to move to America. Okay. And so, you had no savings or anything like that? So all that I had was my part, my ex-partner had said to me, look, you know, when we get to America, like he had been really generous and said... I want you to come with me. There's some provision for you to come with me and explore the things that you want to do. Mm. So don't worry about finding a job in LA before we get there. But there was something inside me that was saying, I don't want to be relying on right. that. It wasn't comfortable to me. So I had sold my car. I had sold some clothes. I had sold some small jewelry. Did you envision changing careers or, or evolving uh, in your career in some way? Or were you no. going to get there and do the same kind of thing? I had started to practice a lot more yoga at that time. And I thought maybe about being a yoga teacher. I thought about maybe doing some kind of leisure wear line. You know, it's, it's all a bit cliched. But I think 
the main thing was just knowing that I was, he had been, he knew that I'd worked hard for so many years. And he said, has anybody in your life ever said to you, you know, here's, here's like a ticket to, to think about the things that you want to do. This is kind of like why it was so much more Because that's what he was doing, right? He was doing what he wanted to do. Yeah, so he, he was following his dream. Like he, wanted, he wanted you to have yeah, that same Yeah, he had experience. kind of a golden opportunity and he was trying to share that with me. Mm-hmm. So he was saying, you know, come and this is the experience. But there was something in me, I don't know what it was, that was just thinking, mm, it's not so comfortable. I don't think I feel comfortable ever having to like ask to go for money for a coffee or, you know, because I would have had no money. I would have had to ask for everything and it just didn't sit well with me. So I'd saved some money and somebody who was aware of what had happened very generously helped me uh, with some money so that I would have a rental deposit when I got back to London, Mm -hmm. which was very kind and one of those things that really I'll forever be grateful. And And this person is an angel, was an angel then, and is very angelic in the way that he continues to live his life. And had it not been for him, I don't know. I, I think things would have been even more difficult when I decided to come back to London. Can you say any more about your relationship with this person or would you rather not? I would rather not. But this person is, is a, a really beautiful person and I think that you have to look back at experiences sometimes and wonder like what came out of what happened and had it not been for my partner I would never have kind of come into contact with some of the people that are still in my life right and this was one of them because you probably weren't in many situations where you needed help like that from other people I mean you're very self-sufficient very self-sufficient and then suddenly you're in a situation where you feel humiliated like even few months after, you know, it had all happened, just going back into my nail salon when I made it back to London, the girl's like, haven't you gone to LA? And it's just, the humiliation is over and over again. It's when you see people, I removed myself from all social media. So people I was like a distant friend to had heard from other people. I was moving to America to live this dream. I'd met this guy and suddenly they're like seeing you somewhere and you're just reliving this humiliation. It's kind of like being jilted at the altar and somebody going, how was the wedding? Like it didn't happen. So over these next six years, you are rebuilding, you're yeah, I'm rebuilding. reestablishing yourself. And the thing that kind of led to Surviving Sunday, so there was like, a, you look back on your life and you, you see the angels, mm-hmm. but I felt them at the time. So there was the first angel that came to me in this really difficult time when I was scratching, you know, pounds together to just get back on my feet in London and to try and get, if you try and rent an apartment in London, you're looking at a couple of months money to go down. It's, it's not cheap. Mm-hmm. And trying to find somebody that you can cohabit with when you're feeling really bad, you know, it's really difficult. So there was my first angel that kind of came forward and enabled me to kind of have a month's rent, which was really helpful on my deposit. And then there was a very, very dark moment, the darkest moment of my life when a friend had offered me an opportunity to come. I I needed to get back to some job interviews in London and I couldn't afford to stay in a hotel. And a friend gave me her house. She lived elsewhere and she said, stay in my house. So I stayed in her house and in this very silent space, away from any support that I'd had for the previous four weeks. Which was all back in Manchester. Which was all back in Manchester. I'm putting myself out there, trying to get 
interviews, trying to put CVs out. It's a situation I've never been in before. One job followed another. Word of mouth had always been a thing. I'm reaching out to try and get work. Nothing's coming back to me. And I'm just in this place where I can see that my partner, like that, that life has gone. Not just he has gone. The love has gone. The dream has gone. I can't get back on my feet. I don't have an apartment. And there was a moment when I'm staying in my friend's house where I really thought about taking my life. Mm-hmm. And it went from the thought to the preparation of that. Mm-hmm. And so you had devised a plan and everything. I had a plan. I had, like, I thought about the means. I thought about when. I thought it through. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I go on now and I, I, I've like, t- I teach a course that, that touches on this, but it wasn't about wanting to die. It was just about wanting this pain to end. to end and not being able to see a future in which I would be of any value. And just to kind of like, we've not really talked about it, but this wasn't about the guy or e- and, it, and it was about a lost dream, but all of that meant so much because when I look back at my past, I saw so much pain so much rejection, an internal belief in my very core that I was unlovable and unworthy of love. And were people reaching out to you at the time, offering to be there and help you and talk to you and listen, and you felt like I was just being a burden to them or no one was really reaching out? Some people reached out and it was somebody actually. So I'd come off social media and I was quite active on social media. So some people had noticed, but a lot of people are just wrapped up in their own world or they think they think you've gone. And you there felt was, lonely. Yeah, I felt incredibly lonely, but I felt ashamed. I, you know, I, I'd been so confident of like this relationship and where it was going. And there was talk of all the, you know, all the things you talk about when, you, when you're with somebody, this great future. And I shared that with people close to me. I felt so humiliated. And it was just a time of like great pain and loss and looking back at the past and just thinking, well, this is what happens. This is what happens when I dare to dream because so many painful experiences have come in previous years and relationships in which I had felt hurt again, that I just wanted the pain to end. And it was in one of these moments where I talk about the sound of silence sometimes, where if you've ever heard that, where the silence actually has kind of like a noise, there was like a ringing and I felt so alone. And I had planned that in the days to come, like it would be the end. Somebody called my phone who had not heard from me for a while, who I love, who I care for, but we'd not spoken for some time. It's not something that I speak to all the time. And she rang and she rang again. And something just made me pick the phone up a time when I wasn't really talking to anybody. And we had a conversation and I told her how low I was feeling. And she said, just give me a, give me a day. I just, there's somebody you need to talk to that I know, trust me. Trust me. And she came back with a phone number of a, of a therapist mm-hmm. that I would go on to meet. And I'd had experiences with therapists, therapists in my late teens, and some really unfortunate experiences in the therapy room with people that just either weren't for me or who I believe weren't practicing in the right way. And I, I went and met this lady that went on to be the figure that has been the most central in my healing. Mm-hmm. And through my conversations with her, I learned you know, I found a path of recovery and it's through those experiences that go beyond therapy mm-hmm. to the things you have to practice in your life, to spirituality, to... Did you have a strong sort of spiritual belief at the time or did you kind of oh. feel like things were happening randomly and by accident? Everything had, I had no belief. Mm. 
And I grew up in a Catholic household. I went to a convent school. And whereas for many people, that's a label. When I was a young girl, I was deeply religious. I prayed a lot. You know, I was still praying by habit. You know, I think you just do that as a Catholic. But that had left me. I had nothing. Because as I said, when I look back, I had evidence. What I believe was evidence of how unworthy of love I was. And I'd, I was in the current moment where I'd lost this big dream. So I'd lost all belief in anything. The belief that I could have ever have a happy time had left me completely. And I now see the angels. I saw, I noticed them one or two at the time. I now see more. Mm-hmm. But through a 50-minute session, once a week, sometimes twice a week, where I could go into a space when I was in crisis, and be held by somebody in that space. I was able to firstly address the crisis that I was in, but she knew, I didn't know. I just wanted to go in there and talk about my current situation. She knew we had to go back Mm. and she waited until the time was right to do that, to look at past events that had contributed to a lot of the way that I was feeling because that breakdown did not happen solely because of this, Mm -hmm. this incident. This was always going to happen. Mm-hmm. This was the trigger. So this, that was your sort of tunnel moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think like there's a lot of experiences I've had that I don't share on Surviving Sundays. And to me, it's quite incredible that nothing more serious happened before the age of 34 to mm-hmm. me. It's a miracle I made it to that point. So now you're on the path to coming back to your most authentic self, yes. maybe even for the first time in your life. For the first time. And what is when do you get the first nugget, the first breadcrumb that you now can recognize as this is the thing that led me to creating Surviving Sundays? I started to write. My therapist gave me really good advice on, on tools that might help me. I was desperate when the sessions used to end, like, how am I going to cope till next Saturday? You know, and she would talk about journaling. My mom had encouraged me to write a journal from about being about the age of eight or nine. Mm -hmm. So I just was writing notes about things. They weren't for any purpose, but they helped me to free my mind of things that were in there. And a collection of stories, I guess, started in that time. It was kind of intermittent. So you would you would write in the mornings, first thing in the mornings, you write in this oh, journal. I was writing a lot, anytime. When I've kept journals before, it's always a situation where I'm trying to decide how detailed am I going to be? Am I just going to do stream of consciousness? Am I going to tell stories? Am I going to write as if I'm going to go back and read it one day? Am I going to write as if someone else is going to read it and I'm going to edit based on who I think may be reading this? How are you actually writing in your journal? This So my younger diaries are really quite amusing. You know, it's like, dear diary, I think I found one the other day. What is circumcision? Question mark. <laughs> really innocent. This is or back like, in the ET days. <laughs> no, beyond the ET days. You know, or like, I went, I went to the fair today. It was really fun. I went on a ride. Whereas this was reams and reams of not kind of measuring the day I'd had. It was pure feelings on a page. Mm-hmm. I feel hopeless. What is he doing? Mm -hmm. Who is he with? Has he moved on? Will I ever be loved? It was pure, raw feelings. 
that didn't really make there was no narrative so just a brain dump you just want to like go a heart brain dump. dump just it was get like it out just get it all out the only person i'm having these conversations with at the moment is my therapist mm-hmm. and she is not available until next saturday so to get me from today until next saturday i'm just going to put this out here because your friends are there but you reach a point of exhaustion with the same old story mm-hmm. so having a place to put it for me was cathartic and those stories started to be written and the point of healing i guess started to to come i had one goal at the time that this all happened when i started to get into recovery mode and that was to just try and get back whatever that meant to the area where i lived before i met him and to try and and see if i could make london work again because i'd mm-hmm. written london off and then i would decide if life was still worth living So I do have one technical question yeah. before we move on. Mm. In the states, the best therapists are often the most expensive and mm. they're cash based a lot of the times. What was it like in the UK? Was it a difficult was it difficult to pay for the therapist or was it covered by the system or how does that work? So at this point, and this is where we have to look at fate, I guess. I had sold my car. I had sold some things. There was a small but not infinite amount of money to one side that was going to be my rent and my deposit for when I got back to London. My therapist was firstly in the north of England. So in the north of England now you might look be looking at 50 pounds for an hour where here in London you might be starting in an equivalent practice at like 80 and it goes north of that. So I was paying that and I was paying for it myself because this money was there and I was staying between my parents. And you were broke at the time. I was broke. So I'm fortunate that and I will always be be honest about this. Broke there's broken there's broke. Mm-hmm. I had a bed to sleep in. I had parents who were feeding me. When I wasn't with them, I was with my uncle and my aunt. I had a friend in New York who'd given me her house. I had a roof over my head. I had the ability to pay for a train to get there. I was able to go to the shop and buy food. So I had resources. I wasn't on welfare. But when I look at what I had compared to a regular salary that was coming in, I wasn't yet renting a property. I didn't know how I was going to be able to do that yet in London. I knew that I had like a month's deposit. There was a real kind of panic on running out of funds because my parents would say come stay, they're not the kind of people that are going to be dishing out cash. Like that's right. just not who where we were. So But you realized very quickly that 80 pounds an hour was saving your life. My literally. 50 pounds an 50 hour. 50 pounds yeah. an hour was saving your life. When I was younger, I I'd had therapy sessions on the NHS. So that's our national health service that were paid for. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a complicated process and I'm really mindful when I talk about that to other people now and I'm an advocate for therapy. I was fortunate I could fund my own therapy mm-hmm. before I then went on to get a job and then it was one of those things that was non-negotiable. I would rather not go out for dinner and drink. Mm. You know, or do the other things and have my therapy. But in that moment where even I had a little, I it was so important to me for, to pay for it because Often you go to a doctor, you tell them that you're depressed, you're then waiting for a referral. You could be waiting for a long time for that. You can then go into a room with somebody that you have no chemistry with or that you don't get along with, and what do you do? You go back to your doctor, you wait for a referral, and I've been in that cycle before and had therapists, one that wasn't fully trained, and one that definitely just saw I'm sorry to say it, a person of color before her with some of the things she was coming out with were not unbiased. So you know being able to go to a person that's been recommended that you can pay for 
has certainly been a gift. But had I not have took the steps to be able to be financially independent in Los Angeles, I would not have been able to to do that. Right. So I was fortunate. So selling the car was probably one of the best things you could yeah, have done. Yeah, it was. It was. Even though on the surface it was like one of the worst things. Because it was. And we, I, were yeah. lost. we were there without transportation. I was there without a car. I told clothes I kind of liked, but none of it mattered because I just wanted this financial independence. That small part of money became the money that gave me the ability to have weekly therapy and to eventually get trained down, to be able to go back to have interviews, Mm -hmm. to be able to feed myself, to be able to then go and look at an apartment in the area where I once lived, where it's not cheap, and to look at a house share. I had the means to do that. And what was the next breadcrumb? So the next breadcrumb was I wanted to live I was just so like, honestly, just this is the strength within. I would not live anywhere other than the streets where I had lived before I met him. I had this real thing. I had a map. I had like four streets. I had to get back there. That had to happen. That I could feel like I had not had too much taken away from me, Mm -hmm. but it's really expensive. Mm -hmm. And I'd been in good work beforehand and I wasn't in that situation at that moment. But there was a job on the horizon by this point. Like somebody had hooked me up with somebody and there was something coming. I'd been for the interview. They said, when something comes, we're going to give it to you. So I was like, right, I've got this little bit of money. So I was looking at all the kind of... How long were you out of work at this point? I think it was about three months. Okay. Which is enough to make you start having real panic about how you're going to get back on your feet and what it might look like. And am I going to have to actually just stay in Manchester where I'd not lived for a number of years? So I'm then looking at all these apartments and I'm kind of like, I know I'm not in a good space and I don't want to be living with party people despite the fact that I'm in my 30s. That's just not where I was at. And I see this advertisement and this lady had published her full details. Like she obviously wasn't aware, as aware of the way that these things work. So she wasn't a native English speaker and she was much older. And there was just something about the way that she'd written it that was kind of like an older lady would write it. And I went to meet this lady And from the moment that I met her, there was just something about her that was so special. And we'd go on to live together for two or three years. And the first few months were just me in my bedroom, keeping myself very isolated. I was having night terrors at the time. So at 2 a.m. on the nose, you know, I I would be screaming. And I don't think she quite understood what that was about. Literally screaming. Screaming out loud. Yeah, screaming. Unconsciously? Unconsciously. Often... I, sometimes I'd wake up, heart pounding, palpitations, like unbelievable. Other times I would sleep through it and she'd tell me that it happened. And it's quite embarrassing because you're waking somebody up every time it happens. Sometimes mm-hmm. she's like coming in because she's worried or then she gets to understand that it's just something that's happening. But that went on for so long. But she kind of let me be. I didn't ask too much. And then there was just kind of like one night where she came in and I was on the sofa And I'd had a few drinks and I was inconsolable. She'd kind of like caught me in the act because when she wasn't in the house, I would sit in the lounge. And when she was in the house, I'd sit in my room. And she she kind of caught me in just floods of tears, inconsolable, just really struggling. Was that one of your coping mechanisms at the time? Alcohol. Drinking alone? For sure. For sure. Yeah. And she came in and she kind of asked me what was happening. And in that moment, I told her about what had happened with me. And she told me about a huge personal loss of a family member that she'd experienced and it was like two people found each other who needed 
a little bit of a helping hand. Mm-hmm. And we, we are like the best of friends to this day. She's in her 70s. She's one of my idols in life. She's an angel. One of your angels. Yeah, she is, yeah. you know? She's amazing. Okay. And then, next breadcrumb? So, at that time, I'm then living with this wonderful lady, and sometimes I'm coming in and I've got bouquet of flowers in my room or a book she thinks I might like or a handwritten postcard, and things are starting to feel more positive. I then get the best job of my life. Hmm. So, you know, the phone call comes, you've got the job, and I went to work on a project for our government. So, I'm not going to get into politics, which is quite a hot topic here at the moment, but... It's like going to the White House, I guess, like going and doing a project at 10 Downing Street, which Mm -hmm. was a creative project. It wasn't a governmental project. It was a creative project about boost flag waving for Britain, showing how creative we were. We are. was a really great achievement, you know, so I get to go and work for them on behalf of a a creative media agency. And I'm going to work there every day, most days of the week, meeting with people I'd never imagined that I could meet. And this job was you know, it was far bigger, I guess, than I had ever imagined that the thing that came in would be. But with that came a lot of pressure at a time where I'm having anxiety attacks and I'm having night terrors and I'm depressed. So I'm back to wearing masks again for a while. Mm-hmm. But it was an amazing thing, you know, to be given a project like that, to be able to go in there, to feel good. And my confidence was really just starting to just build a bit. And my self-belief was starting to to build. So as a woman time. in her 30s, you're obviously working around other people who are around your age group. Mm. I'm sure sometimes people open up about, mm. you know, kind of experiencing low-level anxiety and, mm. you know, maybe imposter syndrome and things mm. like that. Are you feeling normal or do you feel do you still feel like what you're experiencing is worse than what everybody else is experiencing? At that time, I knew I was in hell. I was in a really, obviously, I'm still having, even though my therapist is in Manchester, I'm Skyping with her. So I'm cl- still clinging on week, week to week at this, at this point and not really being very sociable. But I'm going into these meetings and I'm dressed immaculately and I'm going in and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, they, they kind of partnered me with a wingman who worked for the government on this campaign. And he was brilliant and really charismatic and we made firm friends. And, you know, I was able... I've always been quite good at being a performer. So I could kind of, to a degree, getting to the meetings was quite difficult. So I had a problem with public transport. It was really setting my anxiety attacks off at that time. Mm-hmm. But by the moment I kind of got to that building and had to meet, do the meeting of the day, I was kind of able, I've always been quite good at kind of shifting gear, doing that meeting giving everything that it took it did there was a cost to that because then you leave and you're kind of depleted Mm -hmm. you're tired your weekends become a different thing because you're putting so much into just trying to be normal Mm -hmm. and I have the voice of course I have the voice I'm young I don't work in government I stick out I'm not a a white man in the room Mm -hmm. I'm younger than most people I was working with on that project and at first I think they didn't get my capabilities because I've come from a media agency. These people are kind of like attached to the government in some way. And you're trying to talk to them about creative ideas for a campaign that they, they would like to see delivered. And so you're trying to win hearts and minds while you're struggling as well. And I felt like an imposter for the first few months of that every single day, but they came on a journey with me and they saw my value. And as that started to happen, I started to 
feel more valued. And work for me has been one of the places that I felt most safe during all of my recovery Mm. time. It is a place where I needed tangible examples of my worth and my value. And when you're receiving praise and you're being told that you did a good job and that you, you did something well for me, that was really helpful. And work was also a place where I could be that wasn't home where I wasn't sleeping well. Mm -hmm. I was living with this lovely lady, but I was wanting to spend more time in the office than I I was at home when I would have to go and just be alone and watch TV sometimes. So it was a real lifeline. You're no longer contemplating suicide. You're not experiencing that depth of depression. No, I I was, you know, it was something I'd moved from kind of the preparation of it, but it was every time that I was alone, I was thinking about it. Hmm. Are you, is that hyperbole every time or you literally mean every time you were I mean, I'd go from Monday to Friday in the office. I'd leave the office most times and go for drinks with friends that just went too far. You've always got that moment when people have got to get home to their families, their kids. That was a real low moment for me. I'd Hmm. often go home quite drunk, feeling lonely, feeling dark, feeling desperate. And then the weekend would kick in. And I didn't have a lot of energy and I didn't have a lot of plans because I either didn't want to spend time with people or I didn't want to go and be the third wheel mm-hmm. with the couple friends that I had or the fifth wheel with their kids. Some of my friends were out doing really brilliant and brave things. I didn't have the mental or physical energy for that. And so home weekends, home alone in bed, I often think about the fact that I don't want to be here. I was just making it through. And what was it about Sundays as opposed to Saturdays that stood out the thing about Sundays for me was obviously you've got the tasks of the week ahead that are looming and you know you've got to be on your a game and I was in a business where you're not playing right there's always a big client or there's always a deadline or there's always something like I was working on this government project which was very very important to my agency and I Mm -hmm. wanted to do that well but the worst thing I dreaded was Monday morning so I was checking in at the government but I had an office in the media agency where I had to go And on a Monday morning, it's a really sociable place. Everybody's so friendly. There was a tea point where people are getting their cereal and they're making their tea and everybody's, hey, how was your weekend? The thought of that conversation and knowing that I would lie Mm. or that I didn't have the same plans or that I didn't have a story that I could share Mm -hmm. was quite a dark thing. It was something I dreaded. You would lie to make it sound like you had a very active weekend or you would lie to make it sound like you were... I wouldn't eat. I mean... You were in a relationship. That's if I let the conversation go on long enough. I'd usually just say fine or great. And that's or a lie for you. Absolute lie. And then I'd flip it back to you. How was your weekend? Mm-hmm. And it was worse after bank holidays or like Christmas because they really want to get into it with you then. You know, it's like, so where did you go? What did you What's do? What's a bank holiday for people who Public holiday. So it's like a long weekend, usually on a Monday, yeah. Where everything is closed. Yeah, but everybody's got these big plans. They're like, it's not just like, how was it? They then want to know, who are you with and what did you do? Because in the UK, Mm. what I've experienced, everybody is so scheduled, they have their whole next three months planned out to the hour. And that can be quite difficult when when you're single and your friends have kids because everything works around kids' holidays and they want you to be with them, but often they've booked like some Easter trip six months ago with another couple and their kids. And it's difficult to then go and join those things or people are in relationships and they're like struggling to find time together. So things are quite 
a lot of things are quite diarised. That's right, yeah. So you have the best job of your life. Mm. You're living with one of your angels. Mm. You're living in the area that is your most desired area mm. in town. Mm. You're back on your feet financially, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm getting there. Where's your happiness level on a scale of 1 to 10 at this point? About 4 or 5. Okay. And so Sundays are a heavy day for you. Heavy day. What happens next? Take us to the surviving Sunday yeah, so inception. We get there because there was a round of time where I was just surviving. I was not thriving. I was not living. I was just surviving. And I said to my therapist, I'm just laying in bed on the weekends. Or I'm going out with friends that are free and just like blowing my weekend up, you know, because I'm just getting drunk and having fun, but I'm not. And she just said to me, like, why don't you just try one weekend to just get out of the door and just do something different. And I live next to one of the most beautiful parks in the country. So it started with not even a walk in that park. I put my headphones in one day and I went for a walk around the block for 10 minutes. She said, just put 10 minutes, just listen to some tunes. You'll lift these. I was having really intrusive, obsessive thoughts at the time. And that worked. And that was bigger than that was that was huge for you because you wouldn't leave the house at all. Yeah. On the weekends. Yeah. I mean, if, as I said, if I did, it was like I'd then be hungover on a Sunday or I quite often would be like doing nothing. Right. Not seeing anybody, dreading even leaving my house and seeing my neighbors because I would just be like really slovenly and like just not up for chatting or asking, talking about the weather or anything. Because you didn't want to have to lie. I didn't yeah. want to have to lie. I just didn't want anyone to ask me anything about myself. Right. I didn't want any spotlight on me and I didn't have energy to inquire about you either. Like I just didn't have anything to give. Mm -hmm. I felt incredibly ashamed of myself and just like, a, you know, just nothing. And what did you discover on this 10 minute walk? That by the time I got out, I believe it's only ever as hard as tying your laces. That's the hardest part is just getting the motivation to do a thing. That when I got out, as I'm walking, the fresh air, it was cold was kind of just doing something, I don't know, and that the thoughts started to slow because then I'm looking at, like, the cobblestones on my street or, you know, I'm walking and I'm looking at a tree and I just felt better by the time I got in the house. Mm -hmm. So then the following weekend, I picked up my yoga practice on the Saturday at a studio that I'd gone to for years before this mess had happened. I went to a yoga class on the Saturday, which was really hard to get through, but on the Sunday... I went to the park and that walk must have lasted. It was like, I just, I went into a time zone that like, there was no time, like three hours. I walked playing one of my favorite games that I still play now, actually that day, dogs who look like their owners. There's loads <laughs> in this particular park. It's really weird. And I didn't feel alone. Just making mental notes. I'm like, you look like a dog. What dog would I look like? What dog would I look like? Would I be like a poodle? Like, and I'm just walking. And yeah, there are the moments where I'm just like, oh, you know, I can't believe I'm here. I'm on my own. I'm in the park. Are people looking at me? Do I look weird? Are myself, do people wondering why I'm on my own? But like it was, that narrative just started to fade a bit more. And then it was like, after that, I'm going to take myself out for a coffee. Then I'm going to take myself out for dinner. Then I'm going to go to the cinema on my own because I just, and this is revolutionary for you going yeah, out I just by this yourself. Massive idea that if you go out, people feel sorry for you because where I'm from, I don't know, like maybe it is a London thing, but where I grew up, that was just a really weird thing. Like if you saw somebody in a restaurant on their own, you'd be like, oh, bless them, you know, like mouthing, oh, she's on her own, you know, or like making up some stories to why they were on their own. Absolutely, yeah. Um, or if you went for a walk, like 
where are you going? Why would you be going for a walk? Where, where to? Like it just wasn't. Well, just like thing. dogs who look like their owners, you know, we create stories behind yeah. why yeah. people are doing certain things. Yeah. And but, I think especially as a woman, I think with men in major cities like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, maybe even London, it's not as big of a deal to go out by yourself. But for a lot of younger women, I think they kind of have a lot more pressure to be more social and... Mm. I think there are safety aspects to the re- to and reasons the safety aspect like as you well. may not go walking alone. Like we've got a lot of messaging and there have been things that have happened even with people that there were some incidents like 20 years ago, of women that were walking in the woods or running in the woods. And there are these things here. I think even though you're not always aware of it being that thing, like mm. a nervousness. But for me, it was very much about, I felt like I had like some sign on my head that right. was like, nobody loves me. I've got no company. Right. That's Reinforce why those yeah. old beliefs. And I've got to be honest. The... You know, the fact was that people had probably asked me to join them that Sunday somewhere, but I was just saying no. And sometimes yeah. they weren't and they were on with their lives. There were a lot of people who said they'd be there and they weren't. Yeah. And I was very hurt at that time about a lot of things in life, past and present. So, yeah. So the walking was a great healer. And, you know, fast forward you got to fast forward because there was just so much happened in that time. Those small acts led to, you know, three years ago, I'm taking myself to Mexico for 10 days, swimming it underwater in caves, mm. coming up into beautiful and the lagoons. Yeah, yeah. On my own. Right. Walking down into that space with a guide I've never met on a solo tour, yeah. you know, not even thinking about the implications of that, which in hindsight, you know, were perhaps not as well planned as I thought. Yeah. But... The bravery, the courage came from challenging myself to do small things at a time when I felt like I had nothing to give. And so it's that journey of growth that I really started to feel and the bravery and living with this lady who'd never known me, Mm -hmm. who showed me so much love. I remember thinking, people like me. Mm. I mean, that's such a sad thought. She likes me. She really likes me. That enabled me to start to meet my new self, reacquaint myself with parts of my old self that needed love and to have these tools. And I just became somebody that people started to come and talk to about things. And I thought, well, there's something in this. And so eventually... People would open up to you about yeah, their own struggles. They would. Because I became quite vocal. You know, by this point, you know, I've had, you know... Were you posting on Instagram and no, Facebook and no, that kind of thing? No, I mean, I was off all of that for about 18 months. But people in my close circle knew that I was having therapy and I'd talk about it quite a bit. And they'd see the journey that I was on. And I, my therapist says, my therapist says, like, that was just like everything. And I wasn't ashamed of it. I just wasn't. And there was just this new way of life, this bravery, these boundaries that were being set, these people I was letting go of, these new behaviors. And... I don't know. I just, you know, a couple of years ago, I'd had by this point, the therapy, the experiences, the strength, the proof points, and I was feeling good about myself. And I wanted to share it with people. I'd met a lot of people along the way that were lost, who felt alone, who felt ashamed. And I just wanted to, it was as simple as wanting to share my story. And if one, two, five people read it, I would feel like I had connected. Was there a particular day or experience that made it real? This idea of sharing it, sharing your experience with other people? 
Yeah, there was a conversation. conversation. There was a conversation. Somebody who'd known me for a long time kept saying, there's a book in you, there's a book in you. And I was quite intimidated by that. And I'd sat in Mexico trying to write this book. I've been on a creative writing course trying to write this book. And my book is rooted in reality. I felt like to write a work of fiction would be disingenuous, but there were also people and, and, and things I didn't want to kind of bring into the public. So I thought, I don't think I can write a book. I didn't know how to, the structure of a beginning, middle and end. And I had a conversation with somebody that I really respect who has published some books. And he said to me, maybe your format isn't a book. Maybe it's a post. Have you seen TED Talks? Like, look at those. Maybe it's a talk. Maybe it's a poem. Like, think about different formats. And so I just tried to write things as a series of stories, like a story about loneliness, a story about social media and how it made me feel. A story about saying fine when so I was So right after fine. that conversation, you started writing yeah. these posts. Yeah. Well, not the posts. I just was writing them in like a Word document on mm-hmm. my laptop. But you didn't really know what you were going to do with no. it just yet. No. And then I knew then it was really good to just have this guide. Right. Okay. Well, it's just some short stories. It's not about my childhood and how that led to there and one long linear thing. It's just about moments. Were you a writer at the time? Would you consider yourself to be a writer or do you have to learn how to write? I'd written stories? a lot. I'd always, I'd just been somebody that had always been able to write. And if copy came in, I could write it. I could see how it would be written. So it was one of your unique advantages. I think so. I'd written columns in my youth, like social diaries when I was a bit of a socialite back in the PR days. So writing is not an unfamiliar thing to me. And I think a good writer loves to read. Reading has always been a bit of an escape and a salvation for me. So I think I have a nice use of language, but for me, it was also about being a bit self-deprecating and being humble and writing things like a conversation. So it would never be, the language would not be too, it would not be excluding anybody. I would always try and keep it light. Did you have any other platforms that you were modeling your writing after your these, no. these stories no. that you'd read and thought, oh, no. this is really effective. I'm going to do something no. like this. It all just came from the heart. And at the same time, I was really frightened because I found social media quite an intimidating place. So my, my aunt, she's an editor and she's been working on a weekly magazine for years and years. And I just said to her, look, I've got these stories. Could you look at them? I think I'm going to publish a blog. Firstly, just to make sure that uh, I've written it as I see it. But if you're a reader who wasn't in that moment, you might have questions that would need to be answered. And she, she had a good handle on that. She also knows me and what I've been through. And was mindful of how I might need to be protected from naming anybody or just observations I might not have come up with. So she read those stories with me and helped me edit them. And then we decided to publish them. So did you have any experience with blogs or with websites or no. <laughs> how to find a URL no. and buy it and no. connect it to the thing? No, no. I mean, as with my most recent experience of a podcast, I kind of was like, I'm going to do it now. And then I was like, after that, just either asking people questions, but usually like the internet, I'm like Googling how to do a thing. And I found a designer that I had worked with and she had some knowledge of Squarespace. So she helped me like populate it. And I thought, before I go out there on my own, yes, there was a little bit of me fronting this and leading it and being the voice that would be like, this is my story. I thought it was really important to show the stories of others because I didn't want it being 
all about me. I knew so many other people had had experiences right. that I didn't. So at this point, people health. are reaching out to you. Yeah, well, I'd had a lot of conversations at this mm-hmm. point. People, I'd know, I knew people who had either lost people to suicide or people who had lost a parent and had experienced life change because of the grief that they felt or people that had had addiction problems. And so I, I kind of went to them and just said, look, you can be anonymous if you want, but I'm doing this thing and I'm going to share my story. And I shared what I was doing so that they knew that I was being vulnerable. And so when it went live, it went live with my stories and a collection of others. Mm. So what was that like? The, you had the blog, everything your aunt had helped you. You were about to post it. Yeah. What was that moment just before? Were you nervous? Were you liberated? Yeah, were you I, feeling I excited? I didn't sleep. Like, I didn't sleep well in the week before. And there were people who knew I was going to do it, who voiced their concerns quite vocally. They were very vocal. To not do it. To don't do it. Because they don't want people to You all think, people think you're mad. People think It'll affect you your can't job. work. You can't, we, we be careful. You won't work. Interesting. You don't want to go out there and do that. You, you want to meet somebody again. Somebody who... You know, somebody else was kind of saying to me, think about your family, think about exposing yourself. Like, you know, these are people that I love. So it was coming from a place of love, but I was finding myself feeling very resistant to it because I had decided and I'd had conversations with my therapist about this. And, and you know, we talked about what the possible outcomes could be. And I'd done everything to protect myself and others. So it was kind of annoying if I'm honest, it was annoying. Who were your supporters outside of the therapist and your aunt? Oh, Did there you were have many. Some? So I, before I published it, I shared my first stories with a group, a small group of readers. Some, some friends of mine that were really in my space and some friends of mine that I felt might have been more cynical because mm-hmm. I wanted all angles. And they just cheerleaded me. Friends, there's somebody that I used to work with who I told what I was doing. She cheerleaded me. I was like can I just call, call it Surviving Sunday? She was like, do it. Like, she gave me really great advice. Did you think about doing it anonymously at all? Yeah. And what changed? At one point. I just think, how am I going to read the story of somebody and take anything from that? It's just the way my, my mind works. I don't know who they are. So, yeah. What time of day did you publish it? So I think it went live on a Sunday morning. Um, because I'd always had a love for the Sunday papers, even when I was depressed, just like the routine of just getting myself to that shop and like getting the Sunday papers and laying them all out with a cup of tea was like my thing. So I wanted it to be, people said, why don't you do video? Like for me, that slow moment of reading was important. So I wanted it to always feel like that on a Sunday. So I published it and I published it first with a link to my Facebook. Mm-hmm. So that's where all the people you know and have known over time, there were hundreds of comments, people just saying, we never knew this had happened to you. You've got balls. You're brave. Like so, all you these linked it. You shared it to your Facebook page, your mm. public Facebook page. Mm. So people had to click on that link to get to the blog to read it, yeah. and then they left a comment, not on Facebook, but on the no, blog. They left a comment itself. on my Facebook. On so at Facebook. that time, I wasn't having comments on my posts. I just, okay. I didn't want. I don't know. I was frightened, but. I had Facebook, people could comment on my Facebook. Because with Facebook, there's a conversation that can ensue. Whereas on the blog, it's like people leave isolated comments. Yeah, they can. And they can come from any world. And they can come from anywhere. And Instagram, I'd started to build like a few weeks before, like this separate account, which I think had like 10 followers. Mm -hmm. But like Facebook was where 
my, my heartland of friends and people I've known and cynics and everybody else who's ever going to have an opinion about you or has had one and likes you or doesn't like you, but it's still there as your friend was there. And that first post, after you posted it and you started getting comments, did you ever go back and edit it or did you read it a lot of times that first day? I've never edited my piece. Really? I've, 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 re- I've read and reread and reread and reread. Unless I've seen a typo, I let them, I let them stay there. Really? Yeah. You let the typos stay No, no, there. no. I take them away. I, I take the typos out. What oh, I mean okay. is I've let my pieces remain as they were. You don't change the content. In that moment. Right. Did you read it again? I read them. I read something the other day and it's even 18 months, I think now. There's a change between when I launched it and now, for sure. There was right. still a little bit of the, the inauthenticity and in the way that I first presented it was, I'm Emma, I had a breakdown, here's some really awful things that happened to me, here's how I came through them, and I wanted everybody to be like, and now it's all great and like, I'm healed. Whereas in this last 18 months, I started to talk about other things. So like, giving up alcohol. Right. And I've, I've realized there's no shame in still saying that Although I'm not experiencing depression, I've, I experience heartbreak, I experience sadness. I'm still in therapy. Okay, but we'll get to that in a second. Mm. Let me just ask you one more question. When you go back and read that first post, or mm. if you were to read your earlier posts now, does it seem as though you're still, you, you're the one that wrote that? Because I noticed with my own writing, a lot of times I'll go back and read stuff that I wrote a year, two years, three years ago, and it almost seems like somebody else wrote it or I channeled it or something like no, that. Like it's a, it's it feels interesting... like me. It certainly feels like me. I think there's a lot more humor. There's one where I'm really forcing humor in there. And that's typical of me with the jazz hands and everything's great. You know, there's a lot of jokes in there. Mm-hmm. I do try and put humor in now, but I think with those first ones, I was mindful of people not wanting to enter it and follow a piece if it wasn't like really humorous. Mm-hmm. Have you developed a structure around your posts now where you maybe you keep it to a certain number of words? So when I'm asking for contributions, I ask for them between 800 and 1,000 words. And the one thing I always ask, you don't have to give me a happy ending. You know, you don't have to say that everything's fine now because I think actually we're all going through things all of the time. But just to leave something behind for the reader that they can go and apply, whether that's the gift of, let's say, meditation or it could be like have a conversation with a friend, like what can you offer Mm-hmm. So make the story honest from your own experience. Other people might have their own view on that that moment or experience with you, but you tell it as honestly as you believe it happened to you. And because what can you leave for the you, reader? You recognize the impact of being brutally honest, yeah. versus not hiding. Mm. Yeah. And did you have an idea when you first launched about the structure? Am I going to do it every week? Am I going to do it every three days? Am I going to yeah. do just my own posts? Am I going to invite yeah. other people? Did you know all that when you launched or you just kind of figured that out as you went? I knew the, the frequency and I look back now and I don't know how I did it. So I had a, like, I was in proper like job then and I'm like publishing every weekend for a year. I think there were three week, three or four weekends I didn't publish because of summer holidays I publish something every week. And a thousand I, words. I learned to do that. Not all my posts. So I would do this as a combination of my stories, your stories. And then I realized that people were reaching out to me for advice that I was not qualified to give. So I then created a network of experts that we put in what we call the Sunday surgery. So we have therapist, mindfulness teacher, yoga teacher, nutritionist, hypnotherapist that would contribute stories. 
So then that kind of like gave it some credibility. But also, you know, it's like you should have a duty of care if you want to kind of create a, mu- a community of people that are going to come and look for hope and advice. You need to, to, to give that from professionals. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do that with a community. Do you find that the people who find your site, find your work now, or even back then, do they get the surviving Sunday's meaning or is it something that usually needs to be explained to people? So it's in, if you were to click on about, it's there. I don't think people necessarily get what it's about. Like I went to do a talk somewhere recently. I think they thought it was about hangovers. <laughs> hangovers, how to overcome hangovers. And it's hangover. a great joke at the beginning. Like if you, if you think this is the place to get through your weekend and get over Sunday, you came to the wrong talk. Right. But I can talk to you about many Sundays where I felt pretty hungover. I don't think they get it initially. I mean, if I heard it, I'd be like, what is that? I would think it's about Sunday fear, which it is in essence, but then you're not going on to write, read posts about lots of Sundays. But I think it draws you in. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's about surviving something mm-hmm. when you come there. Mm-hmm. And when you come to the way that I kind of limit the bio on both surviving Sundays and on Instagram is tales of self-love and survival, because mm-hmm. that's what it's about. And you also have this tagline that you, you use a lot. It's now been one of your hashtags on your posts. You are not alone. Every post since I started. Right. So tell me more about you are not alone. So what does that mean to you? So it means that when you go through an experience, when I was in my darkest moment, I was going through that alone. Even if my best friend came and sat and held my hand, even if I had a boyfriend at the time and I would have been having depression, many people have depression and are surrounded by people that love them. Mm. You have to go through those deep, dark, horrendous moments on your own. You're at the bottom of the well. You can look up. There can be a there can be like a basket or a, a you know a bucket to come and help you. You have to do this alone. But in that moment, you feel like nobody else is going through it out there. You feel ashamed. I'm the only one. And the reality is that somewhere under that same sky. Somebody is having not the same experience, but very similar feelings to what you're feeling. And I think it's really important to me that we start to lift the veil and we stop shaming and we start to come forward and use our vulnerability as a vehicle to help others. What's a commonly accepted example of shaming people who are having that experience? Man up. People Mm -hmm. have it worse than you. Mm -hmm. You'll be all right. What are you crying for? You're very negative. Stop going on about it. It's awful. Mm-hmm. And in this country, I mean, I, I just saw some recent figures. So last year there was a big project. Snap out of it. Yeah, there was a project last year called Project 84 where um, statistics showed that 84 men were taking their lives each week in the UK. The numbers this year, according to the Samaritans, are 94. Mm. And I think it's 30-something for women taking their lives every week. And these are preventable deaths. And I don't know all of the circumstances, but I do know that we have a huge problem here in the UK with talking about our feelings. We look at people as like there's something, you know, desperately wrong with them or like they'll never be fixed if they talk about having had a, a poor experience of their mental health or going to therapy. And it has to stop. If you could outline or maybe you've done a post about this before but if you could outline a surviving sunday's kit for someone what would it include and i'm thinking in terms of maybe therapy a 10 minute walk a day you yeah. know going to a park playing with a dog what would it, what would that look like something that most people would have access to walking 
Absolutely. Those walks are so important. And I'm lucky, as I said, I live on the edge of a park, but the very first walk for me was round my block mm-hmm. when I couldn't get to the park. And I just think when you're sat with those thoughts and they won't leave you alone, just to change your scene and feel the breeze on your face or some raindrops, just to change the mood. So a walk, the most important thing for me have been, has been the ability to identify, to set and to stand by my boundaries. People were overstepping my boundaries because I didn't really know that they were there. So how could they know that they were there? And it's led to a lot of pain. Difficult when you enforce them, but that's when the real work begins and the rewarding work. I don't, I don't suggest this for everybody, but for me, the, the thing that's helped me kind of live my biggest truth and, and go on to, to achieve great things this past year has been the choice to not drink. Reading, a really important thing for me. Journaling. So there's an exercise called Morning Pages, which is from a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And this is the idea that we put two sides of A4 paper beside our bed at night when we wake up in the morning without doing anything. We pick up that pen and just do stream of consciousness writing, letting whatever needs to come out, come out. You put that away, you discard it, you don't sit there, you don't dwell on it. That's been a really important exercise for just clearing the mind. Music, I start every day with a song. You dance? I dance in my living room, I do. But, you know, I have, I've got like some sound in my house that I can do from my phone. So sometimes I'm just sat in bed with that song, but I start every day with a song. Mm. And meditation. Mm. Tell me a little bit about your meditation practice. So that started, really started, I would say, about now, about six years ago. So when I got back on the mat, I started around that time on the advice of my therapist, my anxiety was through the roof, to start practicing and being more mindful of my breath. So I went to some classes that were attached to my yoga studio in Notting Hill and went on a course and went on to download an app that I use still today, Insight Timer. I love, I think it's brilliant. And I've had times in my life where I practice daily, twice daily, particularly if I've been on a retreat. So I every year would go on a yoga and meditation retreat. And then there are times where it's not happening at all. And you're doing mostly yoga nidra, I've heard I love you it. say before. I right? love it every day. Right, which is lying down, listening to a guide. A guide, yeah. There's some music. There's some music. Um, Does it help you sleep better yeah, at night? knocks me out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like nothing else. I've taken sleeping tablets. When I was having anxiety attacks, not long after my stepfather died, I was my panic disorder kind of came back, and I was really struggling every day. And using this app called Yoga Nidra Light for 10 minutes, mm-hmm would really, really help me. Who's your favorite guide, your yoga nidra guide? There's a lady called Jennifer Piercy, who has a lovely, soft voice, who gives really nice cues. I struggle to follow some of them, you know, and it starts to get like, and you're in the woods, and there's a bubble, and there's too much (laughs) going on, and I can't keep up. And then I'm like, but how big is the bubble, and what color is the bubble? I'm like, that's how my mind is. But she she just works for me. Okay, beautiful. So where is Surviving Sundays today? What is it still just the blog? Is it more? Do you give talks? Do you have a podcast now? Yeah, I do. You came on as my first guest. It was great. <laughs> so Surviving Sundays, people always, you know, a lot of people, not always, but some people, when they meet me, they're like, what's the plan for it? How are you monetizing right. it? What is the, and honestly, 
just the purest thing for me is to be able to have it there. I don't publish every week. I now publish every month. It has led to opportunities to come in and have conversations in companies, which is great. It's led to conversations with individuals. I've met people like you and the network of professionals that I might recommend to followers extends because of those really honest, authentic connections that are coming without any transaction attached, any financial transaction attached. And I like the purity of that. But, you know, I have to live. And one of the things that I'm kind of starting to do now is think about things like workshops, retreats, events, looking at how we can bring more of these conversations into the world, but in a way that can really help people beyond just, I guess, telling a story, like what's the next bit? How can I collaborate with people to give something more than just opening the door, I guess? So I've trained as um, a mental health first aid instructor and I teach a two-day course where we help people to spot the signs of poor mental health in the workplace and to help in crisis. It's incredibly rewarding. And as I do more and more in this space, I find that my brand work that used to be about fashion and lifestyle brands might now be somebody saying, look, we're bringing forward, you know, some kind of non-alcoholic liquor. Could you look at that for me? And I'm just moving in a direction that is more purposeful, that is ultimately more rewarding. Right. And you're still mostly a one-woman show. Completely. So I do the blog. I have um, a regular event series here with Soho House that I do, which is on any topic that impacts your mental health. So that's on a Sunday. They're called Self Love Sundays. Mm-hmm. I've now just started the podcast. All of these things are outside of my day-to-day job. And you're being recognized throughout the country and maybe even throughout the world as a mental health thought leader. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I'm always really mindful of just, I'm not, I'm not a professional. All I can share is my lived experience. And I like to be really honest about that. So there's not a lot of questions that I will shy away from. And if that's connecting with people, then I'm really, I'm really happy about that. Are you officially a nonprofit at this point? Or? I mean, I'm not making any money. But have you, yeah. have you filed papers to no. be recognized and no. maybe get grants? Or no. get, if someone wants to donate a bunch of money to Surviving Sundays to help it, whatever, reach a certain population? Yeah, I mean, that's not happening. I mean, things that do happen are, you know, there are brands that might come forward and say, could we buy an hour of your time to do a talk? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that pays well. Sometimes it doesn't. If it's offered and they can afford it, I will take it because that, then that means I can go and do that thing at a school or somewhere that can't afford to pay you. Right. So it's not really profitable, really, but it's led to then branded projects that are. But in terms of charity and philanthropic aspects, I guess the only thing I'm really sharing right now is my story. But no, there's no plan to kind of do that or make myself a nonprofit. What's the best uh, on-ramp to your work with Surviving Sundays? Is it through your Instagram account? Is it through the website? Is it through it's definitely uh, Instagram. any videos that are on definitely YouTube? Definitely Instagram. Instagram. There's lo- there's so many thing- more things I'd like to do. But as you say, I'm a one-woman band. Like I, the other week, did an event here at Soho House for men. And then I was like, oh, this is so needed. I want to do a stream of events for men. But there's so many, only so many ideas I can do on my own. And then you're looking at partnering with somebody else and can they deliver on it in the same way and in the way, the tone of voice and have, you know, have the same values as you have. So it's quite difficult. Instagram tends to be the way that people find me and my events at Soho House. Mm-hmm. People then come in to- In London, the, London. In London, so and, and in London, Soho House, yeah. But then secondarily, they find the Instagram and then they see the website. It's funny right. because I talk to a lot of people, they don't always realize that the stories on the website are there. Right. They're following my kind of daily- yeah. Narrative. Right. Yeah.
So let's say someone else is listening to this. They're they've been experiencing depression, anxiety, imposter syndrome, etc. They want they have an idea for for some way to to help other people. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you recommend that they do? What, what advice do you have for them? I think firstly research. So at this moment, there are a lot of people out there having a conversation, and I think looking at the ways in which you can do it. That feel most authentic to you is really important, but also being aware of what else is going on because you might find collaborators that you can work with. Because mm-hmm. it was really hard to get this thing going on my own. So if you look out there, there might be voices. So now I've recently started thinking about: is there a man out there that I could collaborate with who might be able to speak more to the male audience? So kind of researching and looking for collaborators is important. Being authentic is really important. I think going after followers is something that people often do. Maybe because they like the aspect of having more of a profile, or because they want the message to reach further. But I think if you're just speaking with your truth, people come to you. And I don't have loads of followers, but I feel like they're really engaged. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's important. And also just knowing why you're doing it, like really interrogating why you're doing it. For me, it helped me put a story out there that was really healing for me. As frightening as it was, it was really healing. It helped me to connect with others. But ultimately, I've achieved my goal of helping others to feel less alone. I have many messages from people who tell me how alone they felt with something and that they I speak their language. So knowing why you're doing it, being authentic to that and looking at who else is out there that you might be able to lean into. Mm-hmm. There are people, you don't have to compare yourself, but there are people who might have skills that you don't have. You might not be the greatest writer. You might be a great photographer. You might be able to document the stories as, it, as a film and there might be people that you can learn from. Or producer, le- learn you can from. bring all these people together. Yes, yeah, so I think researching other people in the space is... What about people who just never feel ready? You know, they have all of the skills. They may even have the resources, but they just don't feel like they're, they're good enough or they're smart enough or that people aren't going to be interested. What do you tell those people? I think take a leap. Because you can sit on something forever and we all have regrets. We don't know what's around the corner. And start small. Like you can, there's a lot of like learning in the error of things sometimes. You could put something out there and, you know, we just did our first podcast recording the other day. Like I just didn't even know how to like do one two weeks before. (laughs) I listened to them. I didn't know how to produce one. We've done it. It's great. There's things I'll know for the next time. So I think, you know, start small. And you might get your confidence in the response that you get from just doing a small thing with a trusted audience. My first pieces were read by four or five people that I really loved before I published them to the wider world. So, you know, you can take small steps. The leap doesn't have to be, you know, this big, huge thing that we talk about, The you know, the lightning and all of that. It can be just a small step. Right. Beautiful. I love it. <laughs> well, you. Emma, thank you so much for opening up and being vulnerable and sharing your story. I think it's going to help a lot of people to hear all the things that you've gone through and, and to lead to what you've created in Surviving Sundays. Obviously, we'll list all of the different references that we uh, that we pointed to in the show notes so that people can find them and find different ways. What's the best way to reach you personally? Do you have a personal presence? Yeah. I mean, people can say hello at survivingsundays.com always, but you can find me at Surviving Sundays, the Instagram account. Okay. Yeah. I'm really responsive. So if somebody messages me, I will always respond. Well, thank you for being an inspiration and inspiring us to be who we know we can be. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. (laughs)
All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview and got inspired to live your most purposeful life, as well as to offer your support to other people who are trying to do the same. Please make sure to subscribe to At the End of the Tunnel so you don't miss any of our future episodes where we're going to try to bring you more stories about regular people just like you and me who who got inspired to start their movement. And if you haven't yet rated and reviewed At the End of the Tunnel, you can do so now. And of course, you can find links to everything that Emma and I talked about down in the show notes below. And in the meantime, keep being the change you want to see in the world. The world desperately needs people like you and I just doing the most we can with what we have. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.